Hello, I'm Anthony Fury. Thanks so much for joining us for the latest episode of Full Comet. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing. It was just about a year ago that Canada began quite the national conversation about residential schools and their legacy. Attention was turned to this issue like almost never before. There was a lot of discussion, debate, and emotion, and yes, there was the burning of many churches across the country and the toppling of statues. There were loud calls to cancel Canada Day. This whole conversation, this whole reckoning, as some people called it, really got started, and I'm going to read from a CNN headline here, after the remains of 215 children were found buried near a school in Canada. Is that headline, though, and any others resembling it, because there were quite a few, fully accurate? Canadian journalist Terry Glavin writes that it is not accurate, and neither is a lot of the ways people talked about the whole story. And in a 5,000-word feature with the headline, The Year of the Graves, How the World's Media Got It Wrong on Residential School Graves, recently published in the National Post, Clavin walks through what was actually found on reserves and near residential schools, what the chiefs and leaders of those communities actually said, how the narrative went awry, and why this matters. The publication of this piece received a great deal of attention, some of it not so positive. Terry Glavin, the author of many books, including several about First Nations communities, joins us now. Hey, Terry, great to have you on. Hi, Anthony. Let's go back to the beginning here, at least the, the origins of this feature that you wrote. What compelled you to write this piece? You obviously worked on it for a while and you were thinking about it well before it was published. Why did you feel the need to tackle this subject? Well, I don't know if I felt the need at all. I was assigned to do it. Uh, the anniversary of the Kamloops event uh, was coming up. Um, all the major news organizations were devoting some resources to looking back on the year. And um, because, I mean, among other things that I do, I have some background in, in, in writing about Indigenous issues. And I co-authored a book with the survivors of the residential, the former students of a, of a residential school that they, the big bosses at the post figured, well, Glavin's the guy to do this. So I said, okay, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm not going to make a lot of people happy. So that's what happened. Why did you know though, in getting the assignment that you would not be making people happy? Well, I think there were those of us in the journalism racket who knew that this was uh, kind of, um, I don't know what the vernacular would be without resorting to foul language. It was not what it said on the tin um, from the very beginning. And it was the New York Times when everything went crazy, right? Uh, it was a, you know, horrible history, mass grave of Indigenous children reported in Canada. And you know, that was May 28th, 2021. And interestingly, that was the anniversary weekend of the George Floyd uh, craziness in the United States. You know, National Guard called out in 30 states and it was just, you know, crazy. And um, so you had all this mass grave, mass grave, and, and you had Carolyn Bennett saying, you know, this has got to be our George Floyd moment. And um, the flags were pulled down on Parliament Hill. And everybody was, you know, my gosh, genocide, mass grave, 215 bodies found. And it, you know, it was the next, the following Tuesday that uh, 
Chief Casimir at Kamloops first had the opportunity to say, um, we actually never said we found a mass grave. And there may be children in the ground there. We don't know. There's been some radar work that we've done. Um, you know, it's all very tentative. Um, there's no mass grave. But by that time, the flags had been pulled down on all federal buildings across the country. They stayed that way for several months. And through that weekend, you know, you had indigenous leaders being pressed on this subject. You know, how many mass graves are there? Uh, and uh, it kind of opened a nightmare drawer in the minds of a lot of white people. Uh, you know, this, this idea of an archipelago of secret mass graves at residential schools across Canada had been floating around like a satanic ritual abuse kind of a deal for some years. And uh, the Aboriginal People's Television Network had tried to debunk it, and I think did a fairly good job. I did a bit of an expose and investigation uh, back in 2008, I think it was. But it was always kind of there and there were these weird stories. And it was almost like, oh my gosh, UFOs are real. <laughs> that was the kind of atmosphere of that, that first weekend. And it never really got itself sorted. So by the end of the summer, you had 1,300, the way it was usually reported, you know, 1,300 uh, unmarked graves discovered, uh, you know, um, after Kamloops uh, and so on. Um, and there were riots and dozens of churches were vandalized and statues were toppled and ridiculous things were said and uh, white people lost their minds in this country. And uh, yeah, that's, that's the story I wrote. Well, to take it back, I mean, you're talking about it now as if it's now been established that there are some corrections on the broader public record and how we think about this issue. I'm not so sure that's true, though, if you stop, or at least your phrase about white people that's losing right. their minds. I mean, if you were to stop uh, people in a lot of people in the streets of Canada and say, what happened a year ago? What did we learn? I think you would hear something along the lines of, yes, there were the initial 200 and then another 700, 1300, say, as you put it, mass graves, bodies, remains, something yeah. like that found adjacent to residential schools. And I think that is still uh, yeah. what's in the public consciousness right now. So what is, what actually well, did happen a year no. ago? What did those chiefs say? And why did chiefs okay. send out send out press releases? What's okay. actually Yeah, let's. Happened? that's a good idea. We'll walk through that. But, but just on that point, you're, I think you're right. I think a lot of people have yet to be properly disabused of this idea. But again, there was a really interesting survey. Um, the Toronto Star reported on it a couple of days ago. I mean, my case, what part of the controversial, you know, whatever, uh, uh, attachment to, to, to the piece that I wrote, I, I, I said nothing has been added to the public record about residential schools after this national reckoning and all of the hubbub. Nothing has been added to the public record about residential schools. That is a true thing. And curiously, this uh, survey that was done, uh, that the Toronto Star reported on it, found that something like 62% of Canadians, I, I may be, I'm not quite accurate about this, I'm just going by memory. 62% of Canadians were sort of at least somewhat aware of Canada's residential schools legacy before last summer. And about 62% of Canadians are dimly aware of uh, Canada's residential schools 
legacy now. Um, so yes, but I also would say that I think tragically, a lot of, you know, the baby's kind of being thrown, thrown out with the bathwater because I've never disputed the, in fact, I've argued for the proposition that residential schools were uh, a form of uh, cultural genocide. And people can, you know, we can have conversations about that, whatever, but I've never disputed the uh, unforgivable abuse that so many indigenous people suffered in those schools. So that's kind of one thing. What I was really writing about wasn't even about residential schools. It was about this, I don't know how to put it, like a mass hysteria event. It was about how the media got all these stories wrong. So let's just, we'll walk through that. Okay, like... Well, let me, can, can I ask you about the nothing being added to the public record? Because when the Kamloops chief, she gave her press conference and released a statement, was she not saying we've used this ground penetrating radar, we've identified these, these I'm going to use the wrong term here, but these, these spaces where we believe there's the holding of remains, and that we had always had suspicions about this, and now we have confirmed that there is the presence of something underground right. here. So that is something of additional information. It's well, like a, a, no. a confirmation of suspicion. Uh, that does not add anything to the public record about uh, uh, about residential schools in Canada. I think I don't want to criticize Chief Casimir. I don't think there's anything that woman has said since this whole blew up, whole thing blew up that I've disagreed with. I certainly haven't challenged the word confirmed. You know, I think if she looked back on it, eh, she would not use that word. Certainly by the Tuesday, she was not saying anything of the kind saying, oh, it's all very preliminary, and it's not a mass grave. And in subsequent statements, she, was, you know, she, she would say things like, well, you have to remember that there, we don't know, but there may be children in the ground there. And in fact, you know, I don't know, maybe there are. Uh, that's kind of immaterial. Um, what's material here is that the, the, the Kamloops people never claimed that there was a mass grave discovered. Not once. And then we can move on. We can move on to, let's add up that 1,300 children who were allegedly found or discovered in unmarked graves or whatever um, through, the, through that summer that created such craziness. Uh, July 13th, uh, Penelicut, Cooper Island, you know, the, in, this is global, by the way, like the, the Guardian in the UK, uh, the headline was, or the lead paragraph was, a First Nations community in Western Canada has announced the discovery of at least 160 unmarked graves close to a former residential school, the latest in a series of grim announcements from across the country in recent weeks. The Penelicate Nation made no announcement none. There was a memo that the chief sent to her fellow chiefs in the Cowichan tribes announcing a march that was coming up in Shemanus. And in that memo, she said, you know, it was about residential schools and the, and the legacy. She mentioned, that's what the march was about. And she mentioned something about um, uh, ground penetrating radar having 
turned up 160 possible burials in their territory, which includes Sussi in the mainland and parts of the Gulf Islands. And the foreshore is what she, I don't even know if she mentioned uh, the word residential school. There was also St. Eugene's. Now St. Eugene's, adding up the alleged, you know, 1300. In that case, again, you know, you get big story, oh, you know, another discovery of, uh, uh, of uh, unmarked graves at a residential school site announced by uh, a First Nation. Um, in fact, the Amak people made no announcement. There was no, the first thing that the chief said at St. Eugene's was that there's no news here. There, we didn't discover anything. Those exact words, there's no news here. Something like that. He said it was, his name's Joe Pierre. And uh, the first thing he said about it was the leadership of Acham wishes to clarify information that has appeared on various social media platforms, as well as national and international news. He went on to explain that a year beforehand, a year, be a year, a year earlier, a single burial was inadvertently disturbed during remedial work adjacent to the former residential school at Acham. There's a grand old building there, by the way, and it's been acquired by a number of Kanaka communities, and it's uh, repurposed as part of the uh, St. Eugene's uh, Golf Resort and Casino. Come early, come often. Anyway, um, there was a there was a uh, there was a graveyard there. It was actually for white people. It was a white people, you know, a cemetery. And then there was a residential school and a hospital. And, uh, you know, they're mostly Catholics up there. So they, that's where they bury their dead. And there's, and the chief went on to explain, look, there's grass fires, you know, the crosses get burned. And, and, and so all we were doing, because, you know, we weren't sure of the boundary of the graveyard because that burial was inadvertently disturbed a year earlier, that they're, they're actually, they were using ground penetrating radar to locate the precise sites of each of the burials in the cemetery so that they could put crosses up again. That's all that was happening. That's it. One thing I find so interesting, found it then a year ago, and I find it now again as we discuss this and, and as your story gets discussed by people, is there was so little... I think rigorous unpacking of what was going on, despite the fact that everybody was talking about this. So, okay, there's these graves, uh, you know, who is in the graves? You know, what are the particulars? What happened to these individuals? And and maybe the answers are known to some of these questions. Maybe they're not. And, and as a reporter, you would want to answer what you can explain why you can't uh, fill in the gaps to those other questions and really give a, give a full accounting of the whole picture. And there really wasn't much of that. And I wonder, to your point of the white people losing their minds, to what degree it's the soundbite culture. And you mentioned one of the chiefs making a clarification saying statements on social media. Well, isn't that interesting? Well, there's the tweet, there's the ticker board. And then on my iPhone, there's this thing, Apple News, and it, boom, and it gives you this sentence to tell you the news. Now you can click through to an article. Nobody clicks through. And it just shows up on your phone. I, I want to disable it. I haven't yeah. yet. And it just tells you, this is the thing you need to think about today. And it's it's one sentence long. And to what degree has this whole story, which as, as you retell these 
items. And I know people are going to quibble with you on their particulars, and that's that's fine. But this is a very complex and detailed no, no, story. No, no, I don't think people can see. This is the interesting. Oh, okay, thing. okay. Well, let's say they can't. But my whole point is nobody's identified a single inaccuracy in that fifty-five hundred word piece. But, but I guess my point is, we've taken an in-depth story, and we've given it the tweet treatment. Yeah, but even is there a story there? Here's the interesting thing. Um, you're right. You know, this is kind of about, you know, the, the strange hybridization of legacy media with social media. I think this is really key to understanding what's, what's happening is that it's all very emblematic. You know, you get photographs, right? Imagery. And a key image, you know, a real totemic image from last summer was, and don't forget, and I have to insist on this, this wasn't something that indigenous people were doing or planning. I mean, even Chief Casimir, I'm sure she must have been shocked <laughs> that, you know, something, I don't even know if she issued a press release or whether it just showed up in the news section of the, of the Kemlops uh, website. But this was the federal government saying we need, in fact, Carolyn Bennett's words. We need our, our this is a Rodney King moment. And then you had that totemic image of Justin Trudeau kneeling at what, you know, was presented as a just discovered, uh, you know, child burial beside a residential school. It's all about him. The teddy bear. Okay, that was at Cowessus. At Cowessus, the chief said, this is not a residential school burial site. This is a Catholic cemetery. 751 of those graves of the 1300 were at Cowessus. And that was indigenous and non-indigenous people, children, adults, Métis, uh, a well-known established cemetery set aside for, you know, uh, for Catholics. And the Truth and Reconciliation Commission has identified about I think it was nine children who died uh, after having been enrolled at the Marieval Residential School at Cowessus. So there you got Trudeau kneeling with a teddy bear. I mean, taking a knee again. It's a very, you know, that's what he did the year before during the Rodney King hubbub. He took a knee. And, and, and so, you know, you've got basically, and I think the observation I've made, and it's not an original thought, is that this government is kind of like a social media marketing strategy in charge of a G7 country. You know, it's not even about Canadian politics or Canadian issues half the time. Those kids get killed in that horrible atrocity in Texas. And the next thing you know, true, oh, I'm going to be tightening up Canada's gun laws. You know, the leak of the Roe versus Wade uh, draft from the Supreme Court in the United States has everybody, you know, out in the streets protesting. And, and Trudeau makes an announcement that basically Canada will behave like an American blue state. If American women want abortions, they can come to Canada. Um, it's just one thing after another after, after another. Well, he but manages time, to make all these moments about himself, the George Floyd incident, well, what's yeah, going on here I mean, with I'm the not, schools. Yeah, I, I don't mean to bang on about what an idiot Trudeau is. I mean, I, you know, anybody can do that. It's just a kind of a, a feature of the age, right? You mentioned, you know, the way you put it is, you know, there are, when you look at the news media today, because, because legacy journalism has been gutted, let's face it, 
you know, something like 2,000 journalists had lost their jobs in Canada in the year leading up to Kamloops. Um, and, and so, you know, everything is digital now, too. I don't know how many people actually buy print editions of newspapers anymore. So you've got this strange kind of galaxy uh, of legacy news sites, um, sort of, you know, a lot of foreign propaganda sites that you wouldn't know are foreign propaganda sites, uh, CG, you know, Global Times, RT News, uh, sites sponsored and run out of Caracas, Venezuela, and Tehran, Iran. And then you've got all of these new kind of startups and, uh, and so on. And, and, and events that may not even be events <laughs> get kind of bounced around like a pinball in a pinball machine. And uh, that, is the, uh, that, that is the milieu in which certainly the Trudeau government uh, inhabits, okay? I mean, they make major foreign policy announcements on Twitter. Um, it's all about the imagery. It's all about, in Trudeau's case, situating himself at the vanguard of the kind of, you know, radical sheep bourgeoisie. And um, it's very American. And uh, I think that, that, that's what made last year so different from other kind of long overdue reckonings about residential schools in Canada, which we seem to have, by the way, every five years or so. I think that's the, that that's one of the one of the reasons why last year was so weird and unique. We'll be back with more with Terry Glavin in just a moment. One thing I found really interesting was uh, I also am the op-ed editor for the Sun Papers, and we had a column come in that touched upon a couple of the points that you made in your feature, nowhere near as exhaustive as as your piece. And I read it, and I'd only read. This was only a few days after, a week after. I'd only read the CBC stories and, and you know, the wire service stories and, of course, the, the, the tweets. And it talked about what, what Chief Kazimir actually said. And I went, oh, okay. And I'm, I'm the editor here, so I go, I, I'm not so sure about this. I haven't heard this before. I should, you know, I'm going to fact check this thing. And I did. And I found the posting on, um, on the community's website. And I said, okay, well, there you go. Wow, didn't know this. Why isn't this being amplified more? And it's, it's interesting mm-hmm. that... These primary sources are, are more readily available to journalists and regular folks than ever. They're posted right there. And yet these items are not amplified to the degree that they could be to just help us have, well, to, to help us include all the information. Well, the, 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 this is occurring, you know, at a time that's been described as, uh, you know, a crisis of epistemology in the Western world. And I don't want to get too pointy-headed about this. Jonathan Rauch wrote a really good book. Uh, recently, he's one of these uh, Brookings Institute Atlantic Magazine fixtures, a uh, great book called The Constitution of Knowledge. And, and it, the argument is essentially that, uh, you know, all of the methods and the means by which truth is established, knowledge is produced, the way knowledge is produced, is breaking down in uh, particularly the Anglosphere, mostly in the United States, whether it's peer review fact-checking, replication, falsification, uh, you know, in science, in the, certainly in the social sciences and humanities. Um, and truth has been kind of problematized, you know? And Trumpism, the rise of Trumpism, I think, can be explained uh, through this, or understood through this lens as well. 
And there's also uh, what uh, the French writer Pascal Bruckner described as the tyranny of guilt that seems to be possessing a lot of the elites of the liberal democracies. Um, there is, you know, this is something that, that people have been, uh, you know, smarter guys than me have been looking at for quite a while. Jeremy Stangroom and Ophelia Benson wrote about it about 20 years ago in a book called Why Truth Matters. And this whole kind of problematization of truth and, it's, and the, 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 the supremacy of narratives, right, um, is something that I think weakened news, newsrooms are susceptible to. It's, ex it's just so hard to do the actual work. You know, the first question a journalist should always ask is, is this true? And what's happening is knowledge is being substituted with belief. And this worries me. This worries me because, I mean, for the last 20 years or so, my kind of beat has been the rise of police states and authoritarian regimes around the world uh, and how essentially when you substitute belief for knowledge and you enforce belief in the place of knowledge and facts, you know, what happens is the narrative that prevails is the one with the loudest voice, the, sh the, the, the shiniest boots, the deepest pockets. And, um, you know, I'm not saying that's where Canada's headed exactly, but that's the pattern that when you substitute belief for knowledge, and that is the state doing that, you know, it's not long before there's a knock in the door in the middle of the night. Um, it's fascistic. And, and that's why I'm particularly concerned with this. And I just happen to have some background uh, in what we used to call Indian country and about residential schools that I think gave me a bit of an edge. And I know some people up in Kamloops uh, and I know some people in some of these communities. I'd spent you know, a lot of time, I'd written extensively about Penelica. Um, so yeah, I, it's, uh, it's, 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 what happened last year was uh, almost a teachable moment, moment, if you like, in this very, very dangerous dysfunction that is enfeebling countries like Canada, you know, open liberal democracies, multicultural democracy like Canada are being enfeebled by this kind of sociopathology. And uh, all I'm asking, and I mean, you know, I, I don't think it's much for journalists to ask, can we at least pay attention to what the local indigenous people are saying here? For right. God's sake, could we not please <laughs> just ask them what's going on? Like what right. happened? And, and, I, and, and, and this is something you know, part of another story. That, that I've noticed over the years is that um, we don't really pay much attention to what local indigenous people are actually saying and what they actually want um, and what they've been asking for from the federal government. Half the time it's just to be left alone um, and to get on with their lives. And of course, because they are still under the Indian Act and almost wards of the state, they, you know, they can't really move. Um, unless they have some kind of federal bureaucrat signing off. This is something actually to pay attention to as well, is that um, I don't know if it's a theory, <laughs> a bit of a hypothesis, you know, like I think 
when you look at the Indian Affairs budget under the Trudeau government, what we used to call the Indian Affairs budget, it's now the Crown Indigenous Relations and Indigenous Services. I think it's almost double. And when you look at where that money's going, you know, it's going to people, you know, who want a wellness center. And it's going to people who want to do ghoulish things like, I shouldn't say that, but, you know, dig up graves. Um, and I certainly not suggested once that Indigenous people have anything to prove at any of these sites or that there has to be excavations. They shouldn't get the funding for the graves. No, sites? no. What I'm saying is, is that there's basically three castes, if you like, and this is really an overgeneralization of Indigenous leadership in this country. There's the, what you might call the old guys, people who still know the language. They're tough as nails. They've been out on the land. And a lot of them are interested in forestry and mining. A lot of them are interested in saying, no, get the hell away from me. We're going to continue our traditional way of life as much as we possibly can. They're hard to deal with if you're a federal bureaucrat. And then there's the kind of administrative business class that tends to be in charge of the tribal councils, and some of the larger bands. And, you know, they're, they're, they've got, business, they got uh, MBAs and they've got law degrees, some of them. And, you know, a lot of them want to, you know, implement a more rigorous taxation regime on their reserve properties. And they want to develop uh, industry and they want to be, a lot of them are actually on, on unseated, you know, their reserves are in unseated territories, as they're called. You know, it, great swaths of the country where there were no treaty, treaties. And essentially they're standing up and they're saying, look, we own this damn place. We're going to start acting like it, and you better pay attention. Trudeau doesn't want to deal with them either. So there's this third cast that's all, you know, that bless their hearts. A lot of them are, are victims of residential schools abuse. And, you know, they're kind of, they've got one foot in the indigenous culture and one foot in some kind of, I don't know, imaginary indigenous culture. And they're wounded. And uh, that's there—that's the people that Trudeau finds it easy to deal with. Well, and I also wonder, you know, to what degree? And your original point about this is about white people or people who are not part of the indigenous community. So much of the gestures that we saw in the immediate aftermath of this news reporting—the the lining up, the shoes, the two hundred and fifteen yeah. shoes, uh, putting putting signs or what have you on your windows, on your property. I mean, this was being done, uh, I, I don't think so. I mean, I can only speak for Toronto by people who were not Indigenous persons, First Nations persons. To what degree was this performative for each other? I know, again, a few days after this, at my children's school, there was already discussion about it and the Toronto school boards were wanting to to codify basically the immediate news reports as, as curriculum and discussion for small children. I appreciate in high schools, you talk about what's in the news and there's classes for that. And you talk about the daily newspaper and I, I don't have a problem with that at all, but small children, you know, learning right away, uh, initial reports and, and talking about that and coming home. And one goes, yes, let's talk about the history of our nation. Let's talk about Canada. What's going on here. If, if these news reports spur Canadians, to go and, and read the Truth and Reconciliation report, as I've done, and you want, one can only be better off learning from that by all means. But yes. there was much more uh, performative measures for each other that had nothing really to do uh, with the betterment of the lives of Indigenous people in this country. And I feel like so much of this story kind of snowballing the way it did had to do with that phenomenon. Yeah, there's, there's a, there was a lot going on. I don't want to suggest, by the way, that uh, no good came of it. Right. Uh, 
I think you could make the case that some good actually did come of it. I remember a kind of a really, really interesting turning point interview uh, that uh, Perry Bellegarde did. He was the national chief of the AFN with, uh, over that weekend, that first weekend when everybody was losing their marbles over this alleged mass grave um, with Evan Solomon. And I don't want to, you know, I, I think Evan's a good guy and, and he was just sort of reading what everybody else was reading. But Evan, you know, what, what, what Perry was trying to get in a word edgewise was that, yeah, well, you know, um, Trudeau got elected on a promise to implement all of the recommendations of the Truth and Reconciliation Report. We've been waiting five, six years now. Uh, you know, where's, where's the money and the national coordination for finding the location of the 3,200 kids that the TRC identified as missing? Right. And, you know, where's all the money for the proper, the proper coordinated uh, surveying of residential, of graves, cemeteries that are residential school sites? You know, where is, that's, that's, you know, what the hell? Because by the time of Kamloops, only 27, no, pardon me, I think it was $33 million had been set aside for the, from the federal government for this. And only something like 6 million of it had been spent. This is six years after the Truth and Reconciliation Commission came out. So if anybody was going to have a serious conversation about, you know, what the hell, uh, when the Kamloops story broke, the federal government, you know, I think quite deftly preempted a proper conversation in, that involved necessary questions that should be asked. Like, where the hell have you guys been? You said you were going to implement the terms of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the four recommendations specifically about, about residential school grave sites and missing kids. You haven't done a damn thing, but that was missed. That was completely blown over. And instead, uh, you know, we basically lost our minds. And, and the, thing, the thing that's interesting about this to me, too, is that, uh, I mean, I, you know, when I say some good has been done, finally the federal government did start pouring a whole bunch of money into this project. Um, but um, I wonder how much damage was done as well. There's a thing... That, that, that happens now, you know, we're no longer talking about history and particular institutions and actions by the state that uh, we should understand as having been, you know, retrograde, retrograde and wrong and harmful. We're talking about white people and how bad white people are. Well, what if you're a kid from some poor Indian reserve, you know, your uncle, you know, something happened to him when he was a kid, when he was at residential school, he drinks a lot. The poor guy is kind of broken. And he goes to a regular school. And, you know, this is after the parade has passed by, you know, the year of the graves parade and all of the hubbub. And he looks around and he sees white kids. He goes, oh, well, these are the guys that genocided my people. You know, this is not healthy. Right. Did this past and, year bring us together? Or did it push us further apart? Well, I... I I don't know. Uh, I think in some cases, actually, in some communities, it did bring people together. Um, I think it did. I think it really did. Uh, and to, I, I think, think we're both in agreement. Sorry, I think we're both in agreement that, you know, learning more about our nation's history and, and learning more about people who are not necessarily us or who we see ourselves as, I think is beneficial. And, you know, I often say whether it's getting the story right 
uh, in the ways we're talking about with the year of the grave story, or, you know, many conservatives who kind of don't want to think about this stuff. But I say, guys, you're always going on about the nanny state decrying it. I do that myself. Here we've got this crazy thing where we said, no, you can't be with your parents. You got to go into the state school. Let's talk about that because that's a problem in our history. You know, let's Mm -hmm. just talk about it all more. And, And maybe the original message your pieces and let's talk about it accurately. Yeah, you know, what's really interesting is that, you know, down through the years, like decades and decades and decades ago, Uh, people, and they were actually conservatives. Their argument was that it was about the family. And it was the the case against conservatives making the case against residential schools. You shouldn't break up the family like this. No good can come of this. And of course, some of those guys were basically rednecks who would say, well, you know, why are we spending all this money educating Indians? And, you know, just, you know, let them be like the rest of us or live their lives out in the bush. But then the, the, the liberals, the progressives, the reformers of the time were the oblates of Mary Immaculate, were the, re, the, the churches that ran the residential school. This is the sort of big progressive. This is what the allies were doing back in the day. So, I mean, yeah, I think it's really, you know, we should know this history, but we should know this history. This should be about knowledge. It shouldn't be about an enforced belief. And, um, you know, no, history's messy. You know, it's complicated. It's not, you know, it's not just one thing happening after another. And um, I think the, the danger, you see, the, the, the reaction to the piece, I think, was very, very telling. Is that, you know, all I was saying is, you know, what, 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 you know, is this true? And what can we say about what we know? That's an extremely, these are extremely insurrectionary questions to be asking of, you know, I hate the term woke, but that's the term people use. But this day and age, that's the issue. I was, your people taking issue with you asking these basic questions reminds me of some COVID writing I've done the past two years. I was denounced in the House of Commons by Patty Hadju when she was health minister for writing just basic facts out of uh, public health documents that hadn't yet been reported, but just writing these basic things, you know, that, that, you know, for instance, children, uh, influenza is more severe in children than COVID. That's consistently held true. That's just a fact. And people losing their minds over it. And I go, guys, I didn't make this up. It's just the reporting, but it didn't fit the way that we wanted to conceptualize things for a while. Yeah, that's what worries me. I think that's the thing that really, I think, should worry us all. And speaking of Patty Hyde, I remember when, uh, you know, when some reporter at a press conference asked her about the reliability of China's COVID statistics, she lit into the guy (laughs) sort of banging on about, oh, this is just a conspiracy theory. And the hilarious thing about that was that only two days before, the Chinese government itself had admitted that it had under- underreported the the known number of COVID cases in China. She had to out-China China. China. She had to stand by their lies even when they weren't anymore. Yeah, so, you know, I mean, this is an age in which uh, because of the rigor that was, you know, we've conventionally applied to the production of knowledge, say, has broken down. That that conspiracy theory is... um, and it's, of course, so much of it has got to do with social media as well. It's just a field day for conspiracy theorists. 
Um, but it's also a time in which it's so easy to dismiss somebody who might discover something that is real, that kind of conflicts with the establishment narrative to dismiss that person as a conspiracy theorist. So it's a jumble. It really is a mess. And um, I, I don't know, I know the government is, uh, the federal government's got all kinds of things that they're doing right now to regulate the internet, regulate hate speech and, and all this kind of stuff. Now I'm kind of a fairly conventional social Democrat, you know, leftist, whatever, conventional. Um, and I, but I just don't believe that the state is capable of intruding like this into and trespassing into, into realms that it has no place trespassing. This has got to be something that we relearn. We have to relearn as individuals. Uh, the capacity to discern truth from fiction. It's not that hard. And that's it's really, really not that hard. But it, you, it's something we have to pay attention to. It's an it's a, it's a muscle we have to learn how to exercise. And to your point, it connects so many issues that we're dealing with right now. Terry Glavin, you've written a fascinating 5,000-word feature that folks can still find at nationalpost.com, The Year of the Graves. Thanks very much for joining us to discuss it. Nice talking to you. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. I'm Anthony Fury. This episode was produced by Andre Pru, with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and Amazon Music. You can listen through the app or your Alexa-enabled devices. And you can help us by giving us a rating or a review, and by telling your friends about us. Thanks for listening.